Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible and you're not quite sure how to find it, go to the New Testament portion. It's the third book to the right, just past Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. We're beginning a brand new series today, and it's called... There you go. I'm going to try that one more time. It's called... We try to make things not very complicated around here. Uh, This is basically going to be seven weeks throughout the spring on the seven basic commands that Jesus gave to all of his followers in the Gospels. You may remember the story of Vince Lombardi, the famed coach of the Green Bay Packers, after leading them to the, the first Super Bowl victory ever in history. Very next spring practice, just a few weeks really after that Super Bowl, he held up a football and all those guys that had just won the Super Bowl, he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Uh, fairly elementary thing for a bunch of guys who just won the, the, the Super Bowl, but Lombardi knew something about that kind of claim, that there's an occasional need to go back to the basics, isn't there? Otherwise, if you forget the fundamentals, if you forget the most rudimentary things, it really doesn't matter how fancy the apparatus is on top of that. And that's true as well when we talk about the local church and when we talk about what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. Sometimes we make discipleship itself so incredibly complicated. Go to this class, get this certification, go to this seminary, do this, do that. Those things are not wrong, but the baseline understanding of a disciple is someone who does two things. They hear and they obey. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Hear the Lord Jesus obey the Lord Jesus. And so we need to know what he said. We need to know what those words mean. And then we need to start putting those words into action. And so through the bulk of the spring, that's what we're going to be looking at because we want the foundation of our faith to be strong, no matter how fancy it may look. I'm grateful for a lot of the accoutrements we have here at Covenant. I'm, I'm grateful for the programs. I'm grateful for the fact that you're going to get jerky on the way out the door. We do all kinds of stuff, and we do it with excellence, and we do it well. I'm very grateful to our staff for that. But if the r- most rudimentary parts of following Jesus are not undergirding that, eventually that foundation is going to erode, and we are going to find ourselves in a world of hurt. And so it behooves us on occasion to simply go back to the basics, seven of them that we're going to cover over the next uh, seven weeks throughout the spring. And I can't think of a more important basic to which we could turn to start this whole thing than Jesus' basic command to repent. Jesus calls you, he calls me to repent. Now here's the problem with that. We live in a culture that tends to love to dumb things down. Do you agree? I was just reading last week an article about the North Carolina Board of Education that has now put a new set of guidelines in place that prohibits teachers from failing their students unless they get a score below 39. I would have been on the honor roll. I don't know why that scale didn't, I don't know why that scale didn't exist when I was in school. I would have been one of the, I would have been on the dean's list. But that's what we do, right? We don't lift the standard. We don't maintain the standard and and demand that people created in the very image of God are actually capable of meeting it. What we do is we lower it. 
We live in that kind of a world where nobody fails, everybody gets an A, everybody gets a trophy. Well, what happens in that environment is all those things start to lose their inherent value, don't they? If everybody gets an A, then it really isn't all that special to get an A anymore. In fact, as an adjunct professor, I can tell you, I've got several students who feel like they're entitled to an A. It's really funny, especially at the end of the semester. Uh, but that's the kind of world that we live in because we have dumbed down expectations. We have dumbed down language. And, and part of this is this idea of repentance. The concept has been so watered down in the modern church to the extent that nobody even really knows what it means anymore. And so everybody just kind of makes up their own definition. And there are, at least in my experience, three lies that get told about repentance and what it is. And by way of introduction, I just want to share those with you uh, right now. The first of those is this idea of repentance as stoppage. <clears throat> just quit what you're doing, right? So if you're drinking heavily, stop it. If you're smoking heavily, stop it. If you're looking at porn, stop it. Well, that, that's good advice, but it's incomplete advice, isn't it? One of the reasons that we are so engaged in the opioid epidemic fight here in the tri-state area is because we recognize that currently one out of every 2,000 people in this county, out of every 1,200 people in the neighboring county will die of an overdose. They won't get hooked. They won't become an addict. They, they won't just do those things. They will lose their lives to this substance. And we want that to stop. But we don't just want it to stop. We don't want the sum total of the goal to simply be that someone gets sober. Sobriety for sobriety's sake is a really boring life. We want you to get sober because God has something greater for you in your future that is beyond that addiction that is holding you back. And if you define a repentance as nothing more than just stopping the bad stuff, you have an incomplete picture of repentance. Secondly, repentance as regret. Some of you think this is true. We've come into this before. I repented of that. What does that mean? Well, I said, I'm sorry. Well, that's nice that you said you were sorry, but you burned that guy's house down. Repentance involves a little bit more than just saying I'm sorry. Don't, wouldn't you agree? Repentance involves some restoration. It involves some reconciliation. Sometimes it involves being willing to pay a price in order to get there. One of the more excruciating things that I've had to deal with in my ministry is when I worked for a network of churches and I counseled multiple pastors and I'd, I'd have that occasion where a pastor would disqualify himself morally or otherwise. He's no longer able, be able to be in ministry. And, and that's the point, believe it or not, pastors who supposedly know the word, who should know better, who would conflate regret with repentance. They would conflate forgiveness with repentance. They would conflate I'm sorry with forgiveness. I'll never forget sitting in my office with a man who had been up until that point my friend of many, many years. We'd spent a lot of time on the foreign field together, serving Jesus together, teaching other pastors in foreign countries together. And he had given in to the temptation and had, had, had developed a physical sexual relationship with a woman in his church that he was counseling, ironically enough, about her marriage. And he sits there in my office and he's sobbing uncontrollably because he's lost his ministry and he's not sure what's going to happen to his family. And my heart certainly goes out to him. And I wept with him as I have wept with many of you when you've either made a mistake that, of that caliber or you've been a victim of a mistake of that caliber. Um, it, but, but I'll tell you this, I noticed something about him. In that moment, he was a broken man. He was a man that my heart went out to, but what he was not was a repentant man. You know how I know that? 
because not one week after all of that emotion, he came back into my office, not sad, but angry that the elders had not given him a very fast timeline and very quickly restored him to the helm of that church. I said, why, why would you expect that? He said, because I repented. No, I don't think you did. Because if you had, you wouldn't have this kind of attitude. Repentance is not just stoppage. Repentance is not just regret. It, it, it's not less than stopping what you're doing that's sinful. It's not less than experiencing regret, but it is far more than that. And then there's this other lie that some of you may have. You, you come into the building this morning, you're like, I don't know if I want to hear about repentance because you automatically associate it with something negative. You see repentance as judgment. You ever seen a guy like that out on the street, sandwich board, hadn't shaved in six weeks, probably hadn't bathed in six months? Repent! Right? And that you hear that word repent and it triggers you because this is your experience. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at that picture. All right? He's pretty, isn't he? Look at that picture and I want you to listen as you look to the word of the Lord in Romans 2 about repentance. And I want you to tell, I want you to just think, if the, is there any incongruence between what I see and what I hear? These are the words of Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God doesn't call you to repent because he wants to judge you. He calls you to repent because he does not want to judge you. God calls you to repentance, not because he's trying to put you down, but because he knows that is the only path to raise you up. Repentance and the call to repentance is God's gracious, loving invitation to you to give you something better than the sin that's holding you back. That's what repentance is. And God is gracious and loving. And then, so don't, you hear this word, if you hear this word repent, you immediately go to this feeling of judgment. You don't need to go there. Not that he's not going to call out your sin, because he will. He will tell you those, those things are wrong. But he's not, he's not calling you out. That's the difference between your enemy and your God. Satan points to you. Your God points to your sin. Because Satan hates you, your God hates your sin because of what it does to you. He loves you. He's calling you out of it. That's the call to repentance. And Jesus puts repentance in this light. In, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, take a look at these words. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, I want you to notice the, the, the sequence of these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. First thing he says is the time has been fulfilled. Now, the Greek language has two words for time. One is the, the, the thing we typically think of when we think of time. Seconds ticking off of a clock. Minutes ticking off of a clock. But there's another word that gets employed here by Jesus. And it's a word that the Greeks referred to when they wanted to refer to the right moment, the opportune time, specifically the right moment for fundamental changes and principles and symbols, the right moment for this to happen. And then the early Christians took that, that concept and they leveraged that meaning and applied it to their own faith to describe a divinely appointed time. So this is what Jesus is saying with regard to repentance. The time has been divinely appointed. That moment, that window of opportunity is here. 
And here's the good news I have for you today. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you have done, that moment is still here 2,000 years later. That moment is still opportune. That moment is still upon you and on me. Jesus offers us, beckons us, in fact, into the kingdom of God. That kingdom that he will, from this point in Mark, through the rest of the Synoptic Gospels, be obsessed with. That kingdom that is mentioned over 80 times just in the first three Gospel accounts alone. That kingdom that involves the restoration of all things and uh, that our sin and our brokenness has lost us. Then and now, the opportunity is here to enter that kingdom. But a day is coming when that window is going to close. The time, the divinely appointed moment, is now. Come to the kingdom. Come to the king. And the appropriate response that we can give to that invitation is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. This is a good thing. This is a glorious thing. Now, it doesn't always feel good because of what it sometimes requires, but it leads you to unspeakably glorious places. The word is the word metanoia, and it's a compound Greek term, combines elements of both mind and motion. It literally means to, to think differently after, but it doesn't just affect the thoughts. In fact, the Romans themselves employed this saying in their chain of command in their military. When a Roman soldier commanded you, if you were one of his subordinates, to repent, he meant essentially the same thing that many of you who have served understood your commanding officer to mean when he or she said, about face. That's what it means. It means you're walking in one direction, and your commander and your Lord, in this case, your God has said, stop, turn around, 180 degrees, begin to march in this direction, and don't stop. Don't stop. You ever played Simon Says? Yeah. Simon Says, take one leg off the ground. Simon Says, hold your hands in the air. Simon Says, clap your hands. And then you put your foot down, and guess what? You're out. Simon didn't tell you to put your leg down. I didn't tell you you could do that. So many people treat repentance like it's one moment in time, and then it's a one and done. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the entire life of a Christian is one of repentance. I get up every day and I perform an about face. That's what it means. And so when we put all this together, we can establish kind of a comprehensive understanding of what Scripture teaches us about repentance. I'm going to put that on the screen for you now. Repentance is a clear recognition of sin, followed by genuine sorrow and contrition, which culminates in a perpetual change of behavior, all granted by a gracious God because you can't do this on your own, and neither can I. I need the grace of God through the power of his Spirit to endow me with the strength to be able to turn, to understand, to see my sin, not as something as pleasurable as it may seem, to feel sorrow and contrition over what I have done to my God and to others around me because of my sin, to turn from it, to willfully begin walking in another direction. I do all of that by the grace of God. And we see a clear example of that action in the text that I've asked you to ask, ask you to turn to. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is in a heated dialogue with a few of the Pharisees. These are the Jewish teachers of the law. And one of these men invites Jesus back to his house, which is interesting to me. Oftentimes the Pharisees, particularly in Christian circles, they get a bad rap. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but they really, we, we use the term as a metaphor for someone who's always bad. And the truth of the matter is, if you look closely at what the Scriptures teach about the Pharisees, you, you see that there's nothing true about the Pharisees that isn't really true about the rest of us. 
There's some boneheads in the group who will not believe, will not obey. Want, some of them want to kill him. Then there are others who explore. They want to know more about him. This man who gets named as Simon a little bit later on in the story is apparently one of those individuals. He, he invites Jesus to his home. And in the ancient world, this is a, a time that would last probably several hours. We're not talking about a lunch break where we go to Blue Moon for 45 minutes, but then we got we to gotta blow out of there because I got to get back to this thing. This is hours long. It's a banquet. And in many ways, it's a banquet meant to honor the guest who's been invited. A Pharisee did that. And he invites Jesus in. And as they're in the middle of that banquet, an unidentified woman appears. Luke just calls her a sinner. She says, he says, everybody in town knows she's a sinner. We really don't know anything if we're only looking at Luke. But, but parallel gospel accounts make it likely that she was a prostitute. Although ultimately we really don't know. What we do know is that this was very out of place. This was, you ever been in one of those moments where you're like, I'm really uncomfortable now, right now. That, this, this was one of those moments. Just didn't seem appropriate. Without asking, she enters the room. She approaches Jesus directly with an alabaster jar of perfume. Both Mark and John will remind us in their accounts of this narrative that that, that perfume was not cheap. In fact, it went for about a year's wages on average. And she opens it in a way that I will describe later. She pours the oil out on his feet. And then the text is, is careful to note that there's tears. So there, there's oil on the feet, poured all over the feet. Then there's tears. And apparently there's enough tears that they wash away the oil. And then the feet are wet. So they've got to be dried with something. She dries his feet with her hair. You ever cried yourself to sleep? Woke up the next morning, pillow still wet, and you think to yourself, that was a cry. So was this. Uh, th this was just a, a moment fraught with emotion. And meanwhile, while this indignity is happening, there's all these dignitaries at the banquet that are watching. And they start turning on each other and debating and arguing about the appropriateness of this until finally the host apparently decides maybe this was a mistake. He's got to save some face, right, with the, with the people that he's invited. So he gets up in the middle of it all, and he says to all the people at the banquet, folks, I am, I am so sorry for what I have done. I invited this man, and I honored him because I thought he was a prophet. He's obviously not a prophet, because if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he wouldn't let her come within 10 feet of him, let alone do the kinds of things that she's doing here in front of everybody. And Jesus' response to that accusation is a parable. He says to this man, Simon, two people owed a creditor, and he forgave the debt for both. One owed two months' wages, the other two years. Which do you think is going to be the most grateful? Well, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Simon gets it right. He says, well, obviously, it's going to be the person who's, who's forgiven of two years. And Jesus responds with, well, that's who this woman is. And Simon... It is precisely because you think you don't owe me as much as she does that you think this is inappropriate. You gave me no kiss. You did not wash my feet. You didn't give me the honor that is normally due someone who is welcomed into your home in the first century. She has, uh, you abstained from anointing me with oil. This woman gave me everything you were supposed to give me. She repented. You did not. That story 
points out four things about repentance, genuine, true repentance that we need to make note of if we're actually going to obey the words of Jesus when he says to repent. The first is this, true repentance hides no wrong. It hides no wrong. Notice verse 37 says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Nobody's covering anything up, least of all this woman. She's done with covering things up. She's reached a point in her life when she's no longer concerned with who knows what. She just wants forgiveness and the blessing of the kingdom. And this, by the way, brothers and sisters, is why gossip is so deadly dangerous in a church. It kills me how many churches are fine with gossip destroying the whole place as long as the gossiper's not gay. This is where we are. You know the difference? Gossipers talk about other people's sin. Repentant people deal with their own. And this is where we are in the church today. These men talking about her, rumor-mongering about her, and ultimately about Jesus, who welcomes her. That's the danger of all of this. And she just wants the blessing of the kingdom. She's willing to throw open whatever. I got no secrets anymore. One preacher put it this way. If you try to cover up your sins, God will uncover them. Well, that's true, isn't it? Didn't Moses tell the children of Israel in the 32nd chapter of Numbers, be sure your sins will find you out. You remember that? Whatever you do, whatever you think is a secret, whatever you think you covered up is not going to be covered up. It was no less than a year ago when a bunch of politicians and a bunch of famous preachers and other people got outed on the dark web for signing up for Ashley Madison, a website where if you want to have an affair, you can go and sign up for that. And they thought that information was secure. Nobody would ever know. And God blew the cover right off of it. Right off of it. I, read, I saw a news uh, segment just a couple of days ago on CBS News about a woman who had been lied to by her adoptive parents at the time. She thought she was biologically theirs, and she grows up with this secret, and her parents have been long dead, and guess how the cover gets blown off? A website called Ancestry.com. Sooner or later, there's going to be technology, there's going to be a process, there's going to be something that you don't even know exists yet, and if you try to cover up your sin, God's going to blow the cover right off of it. Now, here is the glorious truth of repentance. If you are genuinely repentant, you won't try to hide any wrong. You will uncover that sin, and guess what God will do? He'll cover it. He'll cover it. And that's what he longs to do. He doesn't want you living in the shame of that. He doesn't want you living with this perpetual trying to cover it up. Uncover your sins so that God can cover them. These men are debating. This woman is mourning. And the fact that Jesus forgives her sins in front of all of them should get our attention. Repentance means no more rationalization, no more blame shifting, no more technicalities, no more concern over what people are going to think. It hides no wrong. Here's the second thing about repentance. It spares no dignity. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, there are times when you read a biblical passage and you understand that if you're, you're separated, New Testament by 2,000, Old Testament by 3,000 to 3,500 years. And that history sometimes means there's radically different cultures at work. And so you read a passage and you go, okay, this, is, this seems really weird to me, but it wouldn't have been weird to them. Like the cutting of the covenant. 
You know, if you're going to have a, a covenant agreement with someone else, you're going to, you're going to cut an animal. You're not going to cut it this way. You're going to cut it this way. And then you're going to lay the two halves of the carcass. And then you're going to walk in between that bloody mess with each other as a sign of your love and commitment to one another. That sounds really weird to us. I doubt there's a dude in front of me that six weeks ago gave his wife a severed goat's head for Valentine's Day. Right? I, that probably didn't happen because that'd just be weird. But we understand, 3,500 years ago, not so weird. We, we get that, all right? But then there are times where even in the cultural environment described by the Scriptures, you look and you realize, yeah, this wasn't culturally appropriate even then. These people are highly uncomfortable in the midst of this. It is hard to fathom, in fact, that someone would willingly do something like this. They are shocked to the core that she would abase herself in this way. But you know what's happening while they're expressing their shock? This woman is receiving grace. And that's really all she cares about. You ever been to that moment? Can I be so bold as to say if you've never reached that moment in your life, you probably do not know Jesus. Where you get to a moment of desperation and you go, all right, I am done. I am tired of my sin. I am tired of this life. I am tired of hiding stuff. I am tired of duplicity. I'm tired and I just want Jesus. That's repentance, at least the fruits of it. And it doesn't just hide no wrong. It spares no dignity. I will do anything that I have to do in order to get to him. It's amazing to me. People who value their dignity more than they value their God. I actually had a woman, we're going to talk about baptism next week, another command of Jesus, to be baptized. And we're going to talk about why we do it the way we do it at Covenant. And we're, it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. I'll just put it that way. But I actually had a woman one time early in my ministry who, who wouldn't like, and it wasn't about a conviction. Like, we know that we got brothers and sisters who do baptism a different way, and we, we, we may not agree, but we respect that. And we, it, No, it wasn't about that. She was just flat being disobedient. She would not be baptized in any way. And she told me, she said, my hair is going to get wet and my makeup's going to run. I remember her sitting in my office. I'm not going through this. My hair, it's undignified. That's what she said. And I said, you know what, ma'am? You're right. It is very undignified. You know what else is undignified? Dying to yourself, which is what that means over there. It's what it symbolizes. You don't want to get your hair wet? Are you kidding me? True repentance spares no dignity. Number three, true repentance pays any price. Now, this is where we see intimated in verse 38 she brought an alabaster jar of perfume now i've already mentioned that this item cost one year's salary here's something else though that you may not know yet most of these jars filled with perfume made out of alabaster they had a really long neck on them and there was only one way to open them in a way that you were going to have to use all of that in a relatively short period of time now, some of you, you have a, a friend over to your house, and you may offer them water. You know, it depends on, the, depends on how close you are, right? If it's somebody you've never met before, you offer them tap water. If it's somebody you know pretty well, you offer them Evian or whatever, whatever you happen to carry, Deer Park or whatever. Closer friends might get a Coke or a cup of coffee. Sometimes if it's like large stuff, like we've got the entire board in, of, of One America coming to our home in, uh, in November, that they get drip coffee. I mean, I'm just not, I'm not French pressing for that many people, right? 
just not doing that. And so, but then you get close friends and it's a French bread. But occasionally you get those really close friends that you know and love and just enjoy hanging out with. And some of you, I know you because you, you've, I've been in your homes and I've seen this happen. For your really close friends, you got a $75 bottle of scotch. And what do you do? You pour about that much in a glass and you give it to them and then you cork that thing and put it back where it came from, don't you? And you think that's a sacrifice. There's one way to open this alabaster jar. You break the neck and you pour it all out. You empty the bottle. One year's salary, gone. That's the level of sacrifice that this woman is willing to make. And that's something that we often miss, I think, in our own culture. This is why, for example, simply saying I'm sorry is not repentance. It's not. How many times in 27 years of ministry have I sat in an office and cried with a dude that had cheated on his wife. I can't, I, but I can tell you, it's like a broken record. I could have this conversation in my freaking sleep. And it goes something like this. When's she going to let me back into the bed? Never. If your attitude stays up like that, I'm going to tell her to put your worthless butt in the street. Because that's not repentance. Repentance says, I have broken a covenant. I have sinned horribly against my Lord and against my one flesh. And I will do whatever it takes, however long it takes, to make it right. Anything less than that might be a part, but it is not the whole. You get that? Repentance is willing to say, what am I going to, what do I need to do to make this right? If your first response is, how long is this going to take? You're not there yet. This woman doesn't care. The indignity doesn't matter. The fact that a year's salary has just been poured out on this guy's feet, none of that matters. She's willing to pay any price. There's a story in Luke 19 that gives us that example as well. How many of you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Yeah, he was a... We little man, yeah. Songs just so jack up what the scriptures actually teach about somebody. He was a short little guy. That, that much we're, we're known for. But the Bible, when it speaks of Zacchaeus, his primary trait is not his height. It's his character. This is a crooked man. Oh, a woefully crooked man who has used the Roman tax system to cheat people. And so when, when he walks down the street and they see his designer threads, they go, my... Taxes paid for that, and it, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't even my share. It was like he took more than he should have. He took advantage of people. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the perpetrator because he loves the perpetrator too. And he says, come down, and I will go to your house for dinner tonight. And Zacchaeus has changed forever. How do we know that? Because he repented. How do we know he repented? Because he didn't just say, I'm sorry. He actually did something else. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you notice this? Like, no time limit, no what do I have to do, no student coming to the professor going, how much do I got to do just to get out of here, right? It was, what do I have to do 
to make this. I know what I have to do to make this right. I would venture to say it probably took the rest of his life to do this. Because repentance is like that, isn't it? I mean, if you're genuinely repentant, you, you have made an about face and you continue to march, it should take the rest of your life to get some of this done. So let me ask you this question. What's your alabaster jar? Is it your temper? Is it your career? Is it a reputation? Is it control? What's that thing that you fear losing so much that you refuse to repent because you're hanging on to it? You're not ready to break the neck off of it yet and just pour it out. Genuine repentance will pay any price. And then finally, genuine repentance will never forget the cost. It never forgets the cost. Jesus' parable here is an indictment, and it's not just on Simon. I think it's probably on all the rest of us as well. There, there are two people, he says, that owed money. One two years worth of wages, one two months worth of wages. And then when they could not pay, verse 42 says, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? The answer is obvious, isn't it? The one that's, that's forgiven of the greater debt. If you give me $5 today, I'm going to be grateful. If you write me a check that's going to pay off my mortgage, I'm taking you out to dinner. Right? There's, there's a difference, isn't there? There's a level of what, what do I owe this individual? I, I just finished a new book written by the late Elizabeth Elliot some eight years ago, way prior to her. Well, it was longer ago than that, actually, because she developed dementia and then she died several years back. Her family found this manuscript, this unedited manuscript, and, and they, they, they gave it to, the, to a publisher to be published. And she published it. And it's called Suffering is Never for Nothing. It's good stuff. It's, if you, you, in fact, I'll give you permission after I'm done preaching to go to Amazon uh, and pick it up. And if you don't get it, it'll be out on the fall recommended reading list out in the foyer. Uh, such a great book. But one of the things that she says in that book, she refers to a really good friend of hers, another lady you may know by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata, who in high school uh, was involved in a diving accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down. So all of a sudden she can't move anymore. And Elizabeth Elliot's referring to her friend Johnny, and she says the following, Every time I'm tempted to complain because I have to wash the dishes or do the laundry, the Lord brings to my mind my friend Johnny, and I think how my friend would love the opportunity to wash some dishes. And one of the biggest barriers to, to genuine repentance is, is, is this comparison game that we play. Right? What I did was wrong, but it really wasn't that bad. It wasn't as bad as some people. Now, here's what I'm not saying, all right? All sin is not the same, okay? You've heard people say that before. It's a lie. All sin will send you to hell. That doesn't mean it's, it, that it's all the same. When Jesus, for example, says, if you have unjust anger in your heart towards your brother, you have the heart of a murderer. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. He is not saying that anger and murder are the same thing. Okay? You can be angry with your spouse unjustly, and there's got to be some makeup for that. Or you can physically beat your spouse. I think most battered spouses would say those are two completely different things, and they'd be right. So we've got to dispense with this idea that all sin is exactly the same, 
Some sins are far more egregious. Some sins have far greater consequences. We're about, for example, to, to enter, well, we already have. We've entered into a contract with a group called Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. The acronym is GRACE. It's an, it's a, it's an independent organization of former pastors and attorneys, and they are going to help us here uh, by equipping us to guard against abuse, whether it's children or adults, sexual harassment, any kind of abuse, and then they will be this church's tool of accountability in the event that we need to, unfortunately, and God forbid, respond to something. Because you need outside individuals. So they're going to be the people that will help us with beefing up our policies, helping us protect first our children and then our adults, particularly our sisters in Christ. And then how do we respond if something happens or if something is said or if an accusation is made? And they will guide us through all of that. And then if, God forbid, something happens, they will be the outside independent group that comes in while I look at the staff and say, whatever they want, give it to them. Okay? Because we should be accountable in that regard. Now, why do we do something like that? Is, is it because we think that, is, is it because I think I'm better than someone who would abuse a child? No, I don't think I'm better than that. That's not what this is about. But there are certain levels of sin that have worse consequences. We love you. Listen, if you're, if you're a sex offender, this church loves you, Jesus died for you, and you are welcome here. But if you think you're going to work with our kids, you are outside your ever-loving mind. And that's not hatred, and that's not a, an unwillingness to forgive. It's an understanding that some offenses have greater consequences. Amen? Yeah. Now, the, the problem, though, is when we develop this perpetual posture of comparison. Every time you compare yourself and your own sin to the sins of others, you know what happens? You get less thankful for what God has done for you in your life. And that's not a posture any of us wants. It's just not. All sin may not be the, exactly the same or reap exactly the same consequences, but all sin does come from the same root. That's what Jesus was teaching. Right? The same unjust anger that comes out, it, co it grows out of the exact same root that creates a Jeffrey Dahmer. That's what he's teaching. That doesn't mean if you're unjustly angry that you are Jeffrey Dahmer. But it, it does mean that if you, if you go, well, I, just, I lose my temper sometimes, but I've never done that. Well, now you're playing the comparison game with your own soul, and the only thing that's going to do is leave you less thankful, more entitled. And if you'll take a look and compare and contrast that disposition with what you see in this woman it's very different it's very different a truly repentant person doesn't do that but what they do like this woman they never forget what their sins cost them and they never forget what their sin cost god so that he could forgive them and it's interesting if you read the scholarship around the story there's actually a very spirited debate about the spiritual state of this woman some contend that she does this because she seeks forgiveness. Others contend that she's already been granted forgiveness, that this is not her first encounter with Jesus, but she knows he's in the house. And so out of gratefulness to God, she comes in, and even the tears are tears of joy, and everything she does is a celebration. Now, I don't know which of those actually is true, but I will tell you, I really don't think it matters all that much, which is true. Because the end result is exactly the same. Both sides 
show you what a genuinely repentant life looks like. And here's the good news. Jesus tells us that kingdom is still present. He has not returned. Therefore, that opportunity is still here. That, that chronos, that time, that, that divinely appointed moment that has endured for 2,000 years is still upon you and upon me right now. And Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is here and it is available with all of its benefits and all of its blessings and all of its abundance. But it is only available to people who do what he commands us to do here who make that 180, who walk in that other direction, who continue walking in that other direction. The kingdom can be yours, but those blessings are only given to those who have the same disposition as this unidentified woman. It's described in many ways by an old hymn. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What alabaster jar do you need to bust open this morning? Are you willing to give it to him? Will you give him everything? Will you repent? Would you bow with me as we pray together? Father, I pray today that our tempers, our concerns, our fears, our families, our sins, our rebellions would be left behind that we would leave those things at your feet, that we would pay any cost, and that we would begin at this moment to do things differently. And Father, I pray for anyone who's here, who whatever their religious experiences in the past is coming to the realization that that has never happened. They have never truly come to a real recognition of their sins and been willing to just do whatever to get to Jesus. And Father, those people have never been converted, and I pray that you would reveal that to them and that you would bring them graciously to the repentance that brings them entrance into the kingdom of God only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I pray for those who, for whom it's been a long time because either they've been playing the comparison game or they've moved from thankful to entitled. Father, that, that we would repent. I pray that this, this moment would be the first moment of many subsequent moments where we get up every morning and say, it's time to make a 180. It's time to stop moving in this direction, start going in another direction in obedience to the words of Jesus who graciously offers us entrance into his kingdom with all of its benefits through that very act. Bring us corporately to repentance, Lord, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.